Why is it snowing today? And if I further complain, I didn't want it to snow today. Perhaps the proper answer and response is simply to remember that God is in control of the weather. He makes it snow when and where and how much and how long he wants it to. Yes, and perhaps there was some child in the neighborhood or in my house who asked the Lord to make it snow today and the Lord chose to grant her request and reject mine. Everything that is unpredictable to us in this world is like that, I think. The Bible speaks to this issue with the specific example of the rolling of dice or the casting of lots. Proverbs 16.33 says the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from Yahweh. That's a theological proverb, and theological proverbs are always true all the time. Note the emphasis in the verse, every Human decision determined by the casting of lots is from the Lord, sourced in God, determined by Him, ultimately. I think it's appropriate to extend the casting of lots to the flipping of coins, the rolling of dice, the spinning of a dial, drawing straws, the drawing of names out of a hat, or any other humanly randomized mechanism for making a decision. This proverb stands in tight connection with several other theological proverbs in chapter 16 of the book of Proverbs. But its primary purpose is surely not to lead us to think, well, God's in control, so what I do doesn't matter. God's going to determine the outcome of my choice, so I'm not responsible for what happens here. Instead, the purpose of this proverb and other teachings of Scripture that communicate the Lord's omnipotent control of events in this world is to encourage our faith. When the coin came up heads, when the lot fell on Matthias to replace Judas, when the random drawing selected your neighbor and not you, this proverb moves us to trust the Lord with the outcome. Whether we're talking about the weather or talking about other seemingly random events, random from our vantage point, knowing that the Lord governs and directs them should lead us to trust Him. However, we are still responsible for how we respond to these events. And very often, a measure of preparation is certainly necessary. For example, we, say, we take certain precautions, precautions in the winter, even without knowing for certain whether this winter is going to be a bad one or relatively mild. And if a meteorologist is predicting a bad storm for this weekend with incredibly low temperatures, we might take extra steps to ensure that our pipes won't freeze and potentially burst. We may adjust our own plans of coming and going. The forecast may end up being wrong, yet we still took steps to get ready. In a sense, this is the position that all Christians remain in all of their lives. Jesus has set us up to always be prepared for an event that may not actually happen in our lifetimes. Think about that. It's very easy to forget about His promised return in the face of schooling our children, maintaining our bodily health, paying our bills, doing our jobs, strengthening our marriages, taking our vacations, shoveling our driveways, and eating our food. Are we actually expecting Jesus to return at any moment? What would change? What should change if we did? In Matthew 24, just three days before his death on the cross, 
Jesus has announced to his disciples the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And some of his disciples have asked him when that would happen. And it will happen about 40 years after Jesus says these words, though he does not tell them that. They're also asking for what sign they could look for that would prompt them to get ready, to prepare for Jesus' return and for the end of the age. Jesus has warned them about the sign-seeking mentality, telling them about events in the world that could distract them, that could be used by false teachers to lead them astray. That was verses 4 to 14. And then he told them that they would see some terrible things in Jerusalem that would alert them to get away from the city and the temple. That was verses 15 to 22. Then in verses 23 to 28, he warned them to watch out for deceivers who would claim to be the Messiah or claiming that the Messiah had secretly returned. Then in verses 29 to 31, he answered the disciples' second question. There is no sign that would come ahead of his return. Rather, Jesus said he would return to end the tribulation and to gather his people. It won't be secret. It won't be hidden. It will be public and universal. But regarding the timing, which the disciples would like to know about, in our passage this morning, Jesus will tell them that that information cannot be known. As he tells them this, he begins encouraging them to the kind of faithful readiness that must characterize their lives from now on until he comes. Basically, he tells them how to prepare for his unpredictable return. That he will return is certain. When he will return is and always will be unpredictable. We begin this morning in verses 32 to 35 with the parable of the fig tree. Several details in these verses reinforce the approach that I've been taking to this whole passage. But as will be clear, students of Scripture do not agree on the meaning of these verses. As we continue to explore Jesus' teaching in this passage, I ask again for the kind of humility that remains open to the different approaches. That Jesus is coming back is agreed upon by all of us. And I'd venture to say as well that we all agree that when Jesus returns, we'll be gathered together with him to see him face to face and experience the glorious transformation that we all so desperately need. And that is the next big thing in the prophetic timeline. I hope we all can agree that matters related to the tribulation and the Antichrist need to take a back seat in this discussion or perhaps get thrown in the trunk, or maybe even chucked out the window altogether. Let's consider the parable of the fig tree in verses 32 to 35. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In Israel, apparently, the fig tree is unique in that its leaves fall off in winter. When spring comes, the sap begins softening the branches, preparing them to sprout leaves just as summer approaches. Jesus probably could have pointed to all the fig trees around as he told his disciples this, since it's just a few days before Passover, springtime, and the Mount of Olives was covered with fig trees. 
Luke's account of this conversation has Jesus drawing this lesson uh, or parable, not merely from the fig tree, but from all the trees. As unique as the fig tree was in Israel, apparently Jesus broadened out the image, recognizing the value of the similar falling of leaves from other deciduous trees as well. Nevertheless, this extension to all the trees pushes against pressing any unique symbolic significance for the fig tree, as is sometimes done to suggest that Jesus intended this image to serve as a prophetic sign of the end times, fulfilled in the formation of the modern Jewish state in 1948. Jesus is most certainly not doing that. So what is he saying? In verse 33, he presses the point home. So also, when you see all these things. Notice the phrase, when you see. Again, in verse 15, he had told his disciples, when you see the abomination of desolation. Now he says to them, when you see all these things. All what things? It's tempting to say that he must be referring to everything he's just been talking about. Everything from verse 4 through verse 31, which would include the coming of the Son of Man. However, it can't mean that. In verse 33, he says, So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. So, whatever things Jesus is referring to, they cannot include his coming. Because that is what all these things come before. As one writer puts it, if all these things, just parabolically, the fig fig trees, uh, spring buds, if all these things included the coming of Jesus, which is in the parable, the summer, 2433 would be saying, when you see the coming of Jesus, you will know that he is near. So in light of this logical contradiction, I think we must limit all these things to all the things Jesus mentioned in verses 4 to 28 prior to the coming of the Son of Man. Most of those events are going to be occurring throughout history, but the abomination of desolation points to the destruction of the temple, which the disciples had asked about with these words in verse 3. When will these things happen? Thus, I believe Jesus is saying that once the temple was destroyed, which would happen in the year AD 70, the last major event in history that must happen before Jesus returned happened. Jesus has been at the very gates since A.D. 70. This leads into Jesus' amazing word in verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Many students of Scripture interpret the phrase, this generation, in this passage, as referring to the final generation of human history, the generation of people who will see Jesus' return. I find that to be a nonsensical statement. If that's what Jesus meant, first of all, I can't imagine why he wouldn't have used a plainer phrase like that generation. Secondly, if that's what Jesus meant, then isn't he just saying that the final generation that will be alive, the final generation will be alive when Jesus returns? Or perhaps slightly more reasonably, would he be saying that everything from the abomination of desolation to Jesus' return will happen within a single generation? In any case, not only could have Jesus made this more clear by using the word that instead of this, he also could have chosen a different word for generation that's less ambiguous. If, as some suggest, he means this race of the Jewish people will not pass away, there's a different word he could have used that more clearly communicates that idea. 
Nevertheless, throughout Matthew's Gospel, this exact phrase, this generation, has been used repeatedly. And in every other case, it clearly means the generation of people alive at that time. Typically, a generation was understood to be about 40 years. Thus, I think Jesus is simply saying the destruction of the temple and everything that leads up to and accompanies it will occur within 40 years. Some of Jesus' disciples will be alive to see it. Some of the Jewish leaders who oppose Jesus will be alive to see it as well. Jesus is addressing his disciples, and he assures them that all these things that come before his coming will happen before their generation passes away, within 40 years after he spoke these words. When all these things happened, Jesus was vindicated as a true prophet. As opposed to the false prophets and the false messiahs, he warned about Jesus himself is the real deal. And the fulfillment of this prophecy confirms it. But he's certainly more than a prophet. He adds verse 35, equating his own words with the words of Scripture. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Yes, the material universe will end, but the word Jesus has spoken will not have an end. His word is as certain as any Old Testament prophecy. His word is the very word of God. As we learn in other places in Scripture, it is Jesus' word that holds the universe together. And it cannot end until he says so. It is his word that began the world. It's his word that holds it together and sustains it. And it will be his word that brings it to an end. And his word will then continue into the new creation. Oh yes, he can be trusted. But Jesus immediately transitions into announcing something he does not know. As he begins to instruct the disciples further on what they can expect before he returns, and as he turns to exhorting them how to live until that day, he speaks of the days of Noah. Here begins a series of parables and illustrations that hold together in tension the realities that Jesus' return cannot be predicted. There will be no advance warning or sign to notice ahead of time, and therefore, the only way to be ready for his return is to always be ready. Look first at verses 36 to 41. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. The disciples had connected the destruction of the temple with the end of the age. Jesus has sought to untangle those two events. But now, with this shocking statement, I think he's pressing them not to ask such questions anymore. If Jesus doesn't know, then they shouldn't ask. Even more so, if Jesus doesn't know, then no one else should try to predict the time of his coming. In spite of this being what one writer at least recognizes as Jesus' clearest sentence in this entire block of teaching, it has certainly produced significant debate and problems for people. This statement pushes our understanding of the incarnation to the limits. 
How does the eternal, divine Son of God become human? What does it mean for Him to be truly God and truly man all at the same time? How does His humanity and His divinity relate? What does it mean to be one person with two natures? A totally divine nature and a totally human nature. I wonder if we sometimes struggle with this statement of Jesus because we overemphasize His divinity while de-emphasizing His humanity. When we regularly see Jesus in the Gospels doing what only God can do, we can sometimes extrapolate and make assumptions that any time Jesus does anything spectacular, He must be able to do that because He's God. Well, Jesus explained Himself differently. He indicated that he casts out demons, for example, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he speaks of his limitations frequently. Not merely his human limitations, but also his divine limitations. Now, what I mean by divine limitations, paradox if there ever was one, are the ways that Jesus was constrained to act only in certain ways by his Father. Jesus did say in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. But He also said in John 14.28, the Father is greater than I. Jesus claimed not to speak on His own authority, meaning His divine authority as the Son of God. Rather, He spoke of speaking only what His Father told Him to say in John 15.15. All that I have heard from My Father, I have made known to you. And He said in John 8.28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. In all of this, we are seeing a glimpse of how the eternal, divine Son of God chose to live as a human for a lifetime in this world. He limited Himself in certain ways, as instructed by His Father. Famously, Paul would poetically portray this as emptying himself as or making himself nothing as a, in a recognizable hymn. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 describes him as who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. What does this mean practically for Jesus? It means He came to serve, not to be served. It means He chose not to exercise His divine prerogatives. It means He laid aside His rights as God. As John MacArthur comments, Jesus obediently restricted His knowledge to those things that the Father wanted Him to know during His earthly days of humanity. There are occasions in Jesus' ministry when He utilizes divine knowledge. He knows the contents of people's thoughts and hearts. In those moments, is He utilizing His own divine knowledge, His omniscience as the Son of God? Or is the Holy Spirit revealing information to Him? The text never delves into the mechanism. Nevertheless, I appreciate commentator Dan Doriani's quick and easy summary of other important data from the New Testament on this question. He writes, The omnipotent Lord got tired and fell asleep. The omnipresent Lord walked from one place to the next. The omniscient Lord 
asked questions, such as, who touched my garments? What are you arguing about with them? And what do you want me to do for you? The eternal, divine Son of God embraced certain limitations for the time period he was on earth. And one of those limitations was utilizing his comprehensive omniscience. He learned in a way quite similar to the way other humans learn, minus sin. He genuinely relates to other human beings, asking them questions, arguing with them, and responding to them. On occasion, we see him utilizing information he could not have learned through ordinary means. But even in those cases, he may not be exercising his own divine omniscience. And even in situations where he acts as only God can act, like walking on water or commanding a storm to cease, for example, we probably shouldn't imagine that he's doing these things independently of the Father and the Spirit. Jesus' ignorance of the time of his return is another example of a particular limitation. The eternal, divine Son of God volunteered to experience during his life on earth. It was probably a temporary limitation. Thus, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, I suspect, though the Bible does not make this clear, that he now and forever knows the time of his return. The limitations of his incarnation are no longer relevant, no longer needed. In John 17, 5, Jesus prayed, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I think that that eternal glory must include no more restrictions on his omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. While his physical body does indeed remain in heaven, localized until he comes, he also dwells in all believers through the Holy Spirit. Now, that was a long theological discussion. The simple point Jesus was making to those disciples who were listening to him was, stop asking about the timing. Don't try to predict the timing, especially on the basis of signs. And one more point remains relevant for us today. This should imply that Jesus' return is and always will be Unpredictable, completely unpredictable. This pushes against a time frame understanding of the sequence of end time events. In other words, if you believe that there will be a seven year tribulation at the end of history, make sure that you're not holding the view, that view, with the assumption that once the final Antichrist rises and once or once that world leader makes a covenant with Israel, or once that guy breaks a covenant with Israel, make sure you make room for recognizing that even those events cannot be used as time markers to indicate that Jesus will return seven years after or three and a half years after a certain event. That would make Jesus' return predictable. So, what about the days of Noah? Instead of answering their concern about timing, Jesus simply describes what things will be like. In verse 38, Jesus speaks of the normalcy of life among the unbelievers of Noah's generation. As Noah built his great ark, and as he preached about righteousness, according to Peter, everyone outside his family carried on with life as usual. 
The Genesis account highlights the utter wickedness of humanity during those days. But Jesus simply focuses on the ordinary routines of life. Because they were focused on their families, their jobs, their leisure, they remained completely ignorant of the coming judgment. Even though Noah told them judgment was coming. Even though Noah modeled for them faith in the God who was coming to judge and to save by spending 120 years focused on constructing a giant boat in the desert, everyone else continued with business as usual. Jesus says this is how it will be when he returns. Even in the midst of the great wickedness of Noah's day, normal life pressed on. So also, in every generation, even when there is great tribulation, even when there is great wickedness, which surely causes great suffering, People seek to live normal lives in the midst of it. As the book of Revelation repeatedly indicates, in the face of God's judgment in this world, people continue to refuse to repent. As Don Carson writes, in the human condition, massive distress and normal life patterns coexist. In fact, this is a shift of emphasis in Jesus' final discourse in these two chapters Up to this point, we've heard a lot about wars, deceptions, persecutions, and tribulation. From here to the end of this conversation with his disciples, there is a focus on the mundane. Eating, drinking, working, attending weddings, and caring for each other's needs. One writer observes the importance of seeing this. This everyday last half of Jesus' conversation is put to the service of Jesus' typically strong emphasis on living the good life in the midst of real life. This realism trumps date-setting and sign-seeking as the master motif of Jesus' whole sermon. This is the point. When Jesus describes all these wicked unbelievers of Noah's day being taken away by the flood, he is setting up the next two verses where he describes two men working in the field and one of them being taken away and two women working together, grinding with a hand mill and one of them being taken away. Jesus is painting a picture of the separation of judgment. Like he'll describe in terms of goats being separated from sheep at the conclusion of this discourse. The two men might be brothers or father and son or fellow slaves working another man's field. The two women might be mother and daughter or sisters or just two friends or two female slaves. The separation depicted is the main point. When Jesus returns... Mothers will be destroyed while their daughters are saved and vice versa. When Jesus returns, one brother in a family will be destroyed while another brother will be saved. But given that these illustrations follow the mention of the unbelievers of Noah's day being destroyed by the flood, I think it's likely that the man and the woman who are taken away in these illustrations are taken away for judgment. In other words, Jesus' followers should want to be left behind. Noah and his family were left behind, being saved on the ark from the judgment of the flood, left alive to repopulate the earth, to carry on the commission to Adam, to continue the line of the offspring of Eve, leading to the one who would crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 7.23 even says of Noah, only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. In any case, Jesus presses his point in verse 42. Stay awake. Remain alert. 
You can't know ahead of time when the Lord is going to return. So live expecting it at any moment. Even as tribulation increases, even as suffering may be great in this world and in your life, life will go on with family life and work life and normal routines. Jesus will return in the midst of all of that. But verse 42 needs to be held together with the following verses. It's a transition between the two images. Let's look at the parable of the burglar in verses 42 to 44. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You don't and can't know the time of Jesus' return, but you do know something. You do know how much sense it would make to be prepared for a burglary if you knew for sure it was coming. The disciples are to be like such a prepared homeowner. They know that their Lord is coming, but they don't know exactly when. If you knew a burglar was coming, maybe someone in town overheard this burglar telling his accomplices that he was targeting your house, and that person came to warn you, then you'd reinforce your security system. You'd Leave all the lights on. You'd call the authorities. You'd set some kind of trap. Or if they had told you the day, you'd stay up all night ready to stop him yourself. But even apart from this special knowledge, knowing that a burglar had come to the neighborhood, or even just knowing that burglars do come and steal things, you might put forth some effort to protect your family and your property. Knowing the potential nearness of the burglar's arrival, you'd prepare accordingly. Likewise, though you don't and can't know the timing of Jesus' return, you can and should prepare accordingly. Now, the rest of Jesus' teaching in this chapter and the next gives some particular contours to what preparation looks like, so I won't give all those details all at once. Here, Jesus first emphasizes the need for constant vigilance because we don't and can't know the timing of Jesus' return. This would be true every day after the destruction of the temple for all of Jesus' followers all over the world. However, before we move into the final part of our passage for this morning, let's also notice that Jesus' command for readiness here is an emphatically plural command. It doesn't get brought over into English very clearly, but in Greek it practically screams, Y'all! Jesus is not calling each individual privately to get ready by yourself. Rather, He is calling His disciples to help keep each other ready. Just as we might call others to get involved if our home were threatened, so also as we await the return of our Savior, we need each other. We need to keep each other focused on the main thing. We need to help each other resist deception and temptation. As the author of Hebrews exhorts us in Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How are we doing on that every day? Ministry of exhortation. 
That will be one way that we remain ready for the Lord's return. But consider now Jesus' parable of the household slave. Now I think there's only one slave being considered in this parable, but Jesus is viewing him with two different possible behaviors. Essentially, Jesus pitches a pair of contrasting hypothetical scenarios to give us a picture of what to do and what not to do. The slave could act responsibly or irresponsibly, faithfully or wickedly. Jesus' accent is on the warning side. He emphasizes the danger of what happens in the case that wickedness should prevail. Look at verses 45 to 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The slave in the story is depicted as being set over his master's household. So Jesus may very well have his apostles in view as those who were to be leaders in the church. However, the point he's making applies to everyone in the church, all who profess to follow Jesus from that day till this one and until he returns. He describes the slave first as faithful and wise. Faithfulness and wisdom, therefore, are the qualities that followers of Jesus should embrace as we wait for Jesus' return. The responsibility of the slave in the parable is feeding the other household slaves. The word the ESV translates simply as household is typically used outside the Bible to refer to the entire team of household slaves a family might employ. So this particular slave has been placed in charge. He's responsible for caring for the other household slaves, feeding them, using the master's resources to benefit the others. Commentator Grant Osborne fills in the picture for us quite well, so I'll quote his explanation. Slaves were often highly educated and were doctors, teachers, accountants, and workers for every function in a home. Wealthy homes would have dozens of slaves. One senator had 400. Some whose job was little more than doing the mistress's hair or folding napkins for dinner parties. Slaves were allowed to own property, earn wages, and even purchase their own freedom. So, in the parable, the slave could exhibit faithfulness and wisdom by doing the job that his master had given him while expecting his master to return at any time. Jesus offers a beatitude to such a slave in verse 46. Congratulations to that slave whom his master will find so doing when he comes. When the master returns, he will be able to see evidence that the slave has fed and cared for the other slaves appropriately. In verse 47, Jesus promises a reward to such a slave. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. What a promotion. John Piper rightly recognizes the real-world payoff of this promise for us. He writes, We will share in the ownership and rule of Jesus. 
over all things. This promise is echoed repeatedly in the book of, the, in the book of Revelation. Promised to the victors, all who conquer, which is a reference to all genuine believers. Jesus is motivating his disciples toward faithful and wise care for each other. As he did in the Kingdom Life Discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, he focuses here on how his followers treat each other. And at the end of this discourse, in the sheep and the goats illustration, how his followers treat each other will turn out to be the reason given for whether a person enters the kingdom or is cast into hell. In other words, as the Bible everywhere consistently proclaims, judgment will be according to works. And the primary works we're to focus on have to do with how we treat each other. So, the slave who would receive this reward must not settle into a passivity that hunkers down in a bunker waiting for the end of the world. The master expects to find his servants busy when he returns. Or at least, he expects to find the evidence of productive work. He expects that his instructions will have been followed and his people will have been cared for. But more about that in a few weeks. Back in Matthew 24, 48, Jesus shifts to the possibility that the slave might be wicked, evil after all. His attitude is not expectant waiting, eager anticipation for the master's return. He does not believe that the master could return at any moment. Instead, he presumes that there will be a long delay. In his presumption, he abuses the other slaves and he goes out partying with drunkards. As Pastor Doug O'Donnell says, this man is harsh and godless because he believes in cheap grace. He thinks God is not looking and Jesus is not coming when he is sinning. What a relevant warning for us today. As a slave put in charge of the other slaves, he represents his master. That's perhaps what makes this slave so evil. He claims to represent the master. He is acting in the master's stead. Thus, the other slaves might be tempted to believe that this slave is acting on the master's orders, beating them because the master authorized him to do so. He exploits the resources entrusted to him to take advantage of and harm others and to please himself. Why? Because he doesn't believe the master is going to come today. Folks, what you believe about Jesus' return matters. It affects the way you think and the way you live. I'm not talking about what you believe about the tribulation or the Antichrist, though certain beliefs about those things affect the way you live too. Jesus' delay provides a kind of test for those who profess to serve and follow Him. The more years we live while He doesn't return provides more and more opportunities for us to serve Him. Or it provides more and more opportunities for us to reveal our real allegiance. For the wicked slave in this parable, his presumption led to sin, and his sin led to destruction, when the master did, in fact, show up. What the master does, in verse 51, is violent and disturbing. He literally dichotomizes him. He executes him with a sword or an axe. Punishment for rebellious slaves in the ancient world did take on that form at times, so perhaps the image is merely part of the parable. But the image of being split in two 
might have the rhetorical effect of mirroring the split-mindedness, the divided loyalty on display in the hypocritical slave. Thus, the second part of the punishment, which is a unique emphasis of Matthew's gospel, where he's been concerned to condemn hypocrisy throughout, his lot will be with the hypocrites. This hypocrisy is shown in that he pretended to be a faithful slave when he actually was not. This is to show that such a person is a fake follower of Jesus, a false believer. The place where hypocrites belong features weeping and gnashing of teeth, a phrase Jesus has used in several parables to refer to the experience of those condemned to hell. People who claim to be Christians who come to church, who even serve in churches, but turn around and mistreat true Christians, lying to them, gossiping about them, slandering them, or otherwise harming them, need to hear this warning. Jesus is coming. Those involved in church life may be thinking that they can work their way into God's good graces or they can cover for their lazy or lustful living in private need a loud wake-up call like this. Judas was among the disciples, doing ministry for three full years before his hypocrisy was exposed and he was condemned. Jesus made clear in Matthew 23 that hypocrites like the Pharisees are destined for God's eternal condemnation, being sentenced to hell. They will weep forever. Sorrowful over their punishment, but not repentant. They will gnash their teeth in rage against God forever. One author describes the fate of the wicked slave like this. The unfaithful servant gnashes his teeth for a number of reasons. His master's coming has cut short his flamboyant lifestyle and has terminated his authority. It has exposed him to the ridicule of his fellow slaves It leads to his exclusion from the master's household and also to his death. It also reinforces the picture of his corrupt character, for his anger shows a lack of repentance. He has failed to see his failure. This presses us to ask the final question, are you ready for judgment? Jesus' coming will bring both judgment and salvation. Paul says it like this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 6-8. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Are you like the people of Noah's day, focused on your family, on your work, on living your best life now, following Noah, following the passions of your own heart into sin and folly? Or are you like Noah and his family? Have you believed the Lord's word about coming judgment? And are you busy about the work God has called you to do? Have you taken refuge in the ark? Have you found your only hope for salvation from judgment, trusting Jesus alone as your rescuer? Condemnation for the believer in Jesus is completely ruled out. We can't get any plainer than Paul's words in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The verdict condemned was pronounced against Jesus in our place 
Instead, the verdict of righteous has been eternally pronounced over us the moment we trust in Jesus. However, that's not the end of judgment for the believer. Indeed, Peter says that judgment for Christians has already begun and is an ongoing reality of our lives. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The previous verses detail what form this judgment is taking. In verse 12, he referred to it as the fiery trial to test you. In verse 13, he referred to it as sharing Christ's sufferings. In verse 14, he suggested it could take the form of being insulted for the name of Christ. And in verse 16, he describes it simply as suffering as a Christian. He could have used the term tribulation, but it's a term Peter never uses. But Peter did use the language of trial earlier in his letter. And we learn there that though the suffering we as Christians experience is an aspect of God's judgment, It is not a form of punishment. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, he had written, In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What we are rejoicing in, according to Peter in the earlier verses, is that God has mercifully caused us to be born again. He's preserving an inheritance for us in heaven. And He's exercising His omnipotent power to protect us all the way to the end, to the day of His return and eternally beyond. Tying Peter's words in chapter 1 together with his words in chapter 4, we can say that suffering for Christ purifies our faith sifting out impurities as we struggle to trust Him in the midst of our difficulties. And it also glorifies God. What our suffering as Christians does not do is indicate that we are guilty, that we are being punished for our sins. Jesus was punished completely for all of our sins. But that raises the question about how the suffering of Christians can serve as the judgment of God. This is the other side of the testing Testing seeks to draw out what is true, to expose the true nature of a person or a thing. Thus, persecution of the church increases in part to expose those in the church who call themselves Christians, who claim to believe in Jesus, but who are not genuine believers. Judgment begins at the household of God to to purge the household of imposters. Judgment begins at the household of God to expose hypocrites. If suffering pushes you away from Jesus, if your only response to difficulty and pressure is to rail against God or to try to manipulate and control the problem in your own strength, and all of us struggle with this, but if these are the kinds of responses that suffering brings out of us and nothing else, we need to examine ourselves very honestly. If social pressure or temptation is leading you to compromise, if you are living a double life, claiming to be one way 
in certain contexts, while presenting yourself totally different in others. If the culture wars are weakening your convictions, causing doubts about your identity, or if if you find bad company is corrupting your earlier good morals, it's time to wake up. Look again to Jesus. He's the only one who has the right to tell you who you are. And he claims every part of you. If you examine yourself and you realize you're not what you've professed to be, repent. You've pretended long enough. Trust Christ for real. Turn away from your sin. Abandon the folly of deciding what's right in your own eyes. Accept the truth of of Scripture about who you are, about who Jesus is and what He's done for you, and how much He loves you, and how you must live until He returns. Being prepared for the Lord's return includes setting our hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13. That means as we go through trials... As we experience tribulation of various kinds, we need to turn our attention and our affections toward the return of Jesus. The household of God, the church, will experience purifying judgment until Jesus returns. He will have a pure bride. Are you the faithful and wise slave? Or are you the wicked slave who presumes on the Lord's absence? Faithfulness and wisdom means that we look after each other support each other in times of suffering, and exhort each other to abandon sin and resist temptation. It means that we encourage each other to stop pursuing, to to give up, to resist temptation. It means that we encourage each other to keep pursuing the mission. The faithful slave was doing the job the master gave him to do. How about us? Are we proclaiming the gospel? Are we talking to Jesus, talking about Jesus to people. I'm not talking just about are you supporting the work over there, overseas, although that is necessary as well. Are we speaking to the people around us about Jesus and the hope that we have in him? Are we making the best use of the time? Let us not be found idle when Jesus returns. Let us recognize the reality that our Lord could return at any moment and let us live like that's true. I'll close with another exhortation from the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews 12, 12 to 15. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we have looked hard at your son this morning. He has said hard words. He has painted dark and difficult pictures of what is to come into the lives of Christians, into the experience of this world. And through it all, we see grace. Grace being offered to us in these warnings about how to live and how to be ready for His return. Father, would You stir us by these warnings? Would You keep us on the narrow road through these warnings? Would You help us to see the nature of Your grace as an ongoing protective presence with us 
Your spirit is at work in each one of your people to purify us, yes, to preserve us, yes, and to ensure that we're going to make it to cross the finish line, that we'll be ready to see him face to face when he comes. But help us to take our responsibility seriously. Help us to see ourselves as the faithful and wise slave. Help us to eagerly expect the return of our Savior at any moment and live like that's going to happen, even if He delays. Help us to remain faithful. We ask for it because we can't do it on our own. And you've promised grace to help us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your glorious promises to us that we can cling to and that can motivate us to keep moving in the right direction. I pray for those who don't know you, who might be listening to this, that they might wake up from their blindness, that they might wake up from their death. And I pray that you would change them, grant them life, grant them repentance, grant them hope in Christ. It's for his sake we pray. Amen. Hang tight for a couple of announcements.